0: There's a saying that's very common, especially among, uh, uh, well, uh, especially among people who are interested in motivation, goal setting, and achievement. They, they like to quote this saying, and the saying is the main thing, now you might already know the rest of the saying, the main thing is To keep the main thing, the main thing. (laughs) Now that statement is kind of frustrating, I think. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And somehow you can say that without identifying the main thing. Without saying, well, what is the main thing that we're supposed to keep in the place of the main thing? And they did that on purpose because they want you to set your own main thing. And they want you to say, whatever your main thing is, your main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I would like to suggest to you that the Bible has a main thing. And that if the Word of God identifies the main thing, then you don't need to. You don't need to have your own main thing. If God Almighty has established what the main thing is, here's what I would like to suggest to you. Fellowship has always been the main thing. Now, that might surprise you to hear that, fellowship. Because here's what my experience in the church has been. Fellowship is kind of a little thing we do on the side, but we don't really need. Like after our worship service here in this church, we always have a fellowship time, which by which we mean the stand around and talk and eat cookies and drink coffee. But I think what the Bible teaches us is that fellowship is it. It is the thing. It is not a thing that serves some other purpose, which is often how we treat it. But it is the thing. Now, I'm not going to just claim that and not try to prove my case. But here's something you might want to notice. The triune God. The triune God. That's what you should notice. God, the one God, eternally exists Eternally exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is an eternal relation of persons in one existence. That's over our heads. We don't really comprehend how that can be, and yet it is. The Triune God is an eternal fellowship of persons. In fact, that is the main thing about God. The main thing about God is that God exists eternally in fellowship with God. That there are persons in God that relate to one another as Father and Son and Spirit. This is the main thing about God. Where does the Bible say that? God is love. You know, love is not a possibility apart from fellowship. In fact, love is a description of fellowship. God is love, and that's an eternal quality of the character of God. It's a statement of His Eternal nature, when we say God is love, God didn't begin to be love after making us. God is love and made us as an expression of His eternal fellowshipping nature. So the human being is created in fellowship with God. Made in fellowship with God that's what the word likeness means in Genesis made in the likeness of God as children of God in fellowship with God made to walk our daily lives knowing him with him and him with us and we're made in God's likeness to walk in fellowship with each other You know, the first thing that was declared to be not good, God, when he was creating things, he'd create some things and go, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then when you get into Genesis chapter 2, there's something that's not good. You know what it was? There's one word, alone 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 is not good so as long as adam the man was alone that was not good and god solved that problem by creating for adam a wife eve and that then is the first thing that is declared in the account of genesis to be very good And so when God made humanity, God made a family, one, only one family, a group of people who are in their very biology related to one another. And why? Because God is a relation. If we are to bear his image, we must do so in relation, fellowship. Fellowship is the main thing. We're created to exhibit God's loving nature. The loving nature that is in his eternal nature is exhibited in our created nature. And then something horrible happened. Sin. What is sin? To sin is to act independently. That's what it is. To sin is to act independently, to act apart from God. To act in self-reliance and not reliance upon God. To act according to one's own purpose and not according to his. For some purpose other than his glory, other than exhibiting his image, but to exhibit my own image, to belong to myself, to choose the knowledge of good and evil over fruitful fellowship with God. One theologian said it like this, we are sinners in that we revolve in our own self-reference and do so piously. Even when we get religion... We operate independently, and we prove ourselves for God's approval. Do you see how God cannot ever approve that? If I'm proving myself, I'm acting against God's purpose in making me, which is to prove him, not me to show his nature, not mine. My properly created nature lives in fellowship with him and exhibits that fellowship in all its other relations. And sin is to disrupt any of that. Sin is a person's disruption of fellowship with God, which inevitably results in the disintegration of all Right relationships with myself, with other human beings, with all creation. The essence of the moral law of God is relational. All human persons are required by God to live, first of all, in relationship, in a relationship of covenantal love. With God Himself, and then to reflect that love in all our human relationships. This is why the law is summarized love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Sin is to act alone to act independently from right relation to God. And, of course, to sin is to die. God said it, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the day Adam ate of it, he surely died. He was alienated from God, and that is dead. It takes a while for this to play out in our physical existence. But to sin is to die. To die is to be alienated from fellowship of the triune God. You could see this in John chapter 1 or 1 John chapter 1. To have fellowship with God is to be alive. Here's the thing. When I'm alienated from God, I'm also alienated from you. You can see this in the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they quit trusting each other. They started blaming each other. They had to put clothes on because they couldn't stand the intimacy So dead people are also alienated from everyone else and everything else. Breaking from trust in God immediately corrodes all other trust. Now, nakedness produces shame. It didn't before we went on our own. Nakedness produces a need for cover. The other thing about us in sin is we're incapable we can see what is good and what is right and we can sometimes approximate it but even when we do the scripture says all our righteousnesses are filthy rags to God that doesn't seem fair how's that? right Because even acting righteously is unrighteous when we act apart from God. Even when I do right, the thing I do is good. But it's also sinful because I'm acting apart from the source. So Paul writes, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is not flowing from that fellowship, that right relationship to God Almighty, whatever doesn't flow from my confidence and trust in that is sin. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please him. In James, we read this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. So what's the source of conflict in, among people in the church? You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your desires, on your passions. I'm going to paraphrase that. Conflict among Christian brothers is the result of desires that have not been submitted to God for his provision. In other words, I'm fighting with you to get you to provide something and I'm not looking to God to be my provider. I think you should treat me as some particular way. You should do what I want. And this scripture reminds me God is the provider, not you. Conflict between Christian brothers is a result of desires that have not been submitted to God for his provision. It's focused on me getting at the heart of our conflicts, the heart of, things, of disagreements that result in disrupted fellowship. In other words, our relationship is off, not right, not good. At the heart of that is not how we talk to each other, but whether we talk to God. The question is not can I get you to do what I need you to do, but will God provide what I need so that I can become a source to the people around me and not a sink?" This could include even our righteous desires. Even when we're fighting over differing visions of the right thing to do, we are fighting because we are not trusting God to reveal his clear direction. I think we should do this, but I think we should do that. We might both be right. We might both have great cases for how we ought to proceed either this way or that way, and yet we don't agree, and so we fight for each other with each other because we're not willing to be patient with each other and wait for God's clear direction. We're not willing to be patient. We're not willing to engage in open, loving conversation. Instead, we stand and fight for what we know is right. What if two people know they're right and that yet they aren't in agreement? Well, if I'm right, I expect the head of the church, our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself, will make it clear. Can I wait? Can I wait for him, for his direction to be clear? We trust his leadership, don't we? Well sometimes we get impatient with his leadership and then we get impatient with each other. Where's our problem? Our problem is not really with each other, but our problem is, are we looking to him? The scripture says in this text, conflicts come from our desires that we don't ask for God. You don't have because you don't ask. It's about who you're asking. It's about who you're looking for, looking to who you think is responsible now i would stop right here and say you know if you're thinking as you hear this message and you're thinking of someone you know that needs to hear this then you need to hear this So where were we in the story? We were at this point, in Adam all sinned, and so in Adam all died. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Scripture says. Think of that now. All we like sheep have gone astray. What does that mean? Well, he says it right here. We have turned everyone, each and every one of us, to his own way. That's the problem. The problem is not where your way misleads you, but the fact that it's your own way. And not according to his way. And not operating from his loving provision, but seeking to provide your own. So that's all kind of bad news, I guess, but there's good news, of course. Here's the good news. The Lord has caused the punishment of all our sins to fall on him. The good news is that the story of God has a hero, the eternal son who joins us, who joins us, who is God with us, who did not leave us out there wandering around in the dark like we were who didn't just allow that situation to stand. But what did he do? He joined us. He is one of us. He became a man, a human being, as much a human being as I am, well, and not a broken one. So the good news, the eternal son who joins us as one of us in the broken world of our alienation, of our isolation, of our turning in to be self-oriented, that he has come into that world and he has lived a human life of perfect righteousness. What does that mean? We learned about this when we studied the book of John. What that means is he always lived his human life in perfect fellowship with God so that his horizontal life was always a true reflection of his vertical life, his fellowship with the living God. So he says, I never do anything except what I see the Father doing. I never act independently That is the key. That is the thing itself. He says, I never act independently of my own initiative. What he's saying when he says that is whatever I do is actually righteous because it is actually the expression of God's righteousness into this world. He lived a life of perfect righteousness, perfect image-bearing fellowship with God the Father. And then he died. (laughs) He died. That had to be utterly voluntary. Because there's no reason. There's no judgment upon him because he has lived the human life that Adam was supposed to live. He has lived. He has walked with God his whole life, every instant of every day. And because he walked with God, he walked rightly with everything and everyone else. And so he should not die. But he did. He has no sin Yet he experienced the result of sin, our sin, <clears throat> death. By which we mean some kind of alienation from fellowship with God. We can't figure out how this is, but Jesus, the man, experienced death. Separation, isolation, alone. Alone. And because he had no sin of his own, his death serves as the satisfaction for our sin. All, of the sin. all of the sin of his people, those who simply receive this gift by faith. God's judgment upon us is, sac- is satisfied by his sacrifice. And so we are forgiven. We are forgiven. All of my operating on my own independently from God, God says, okay, you don't have to die. But there's more, we're not just forgiven. To be forgiven is to be brought back to zero on the righteousness scale. I'm not just forgiven. I'm justified. And that's way more. To be justified is to be credited as righteous. In other words, God, looking at me, sees me in the clothed, the scripture says, in the righteousness of Christ. In other words, I get credit for the life he lived. The life he lived as a man, his righteous life, is given as credit to me. So I am not just forgiven, but considered right. Righteous before God. That makes another thing possible. In this union with Christ, we have already been raised from our dead condition and given the opportunity to walk in newness of life. In Romans 6, 4, we read that. And so we are restored to active fellowship with God the Father. He says this in Romans 5, 1. Having been justified, we Have peace with God. So there's no longer anything between me and God, no longer any obstruction that keeps me from knowing him. And do you know that Jesus said that to know God is eternal life? That's the very nature of eternal life. Uh, That's the very nature of life is fellowship with the living God. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, <coughs> so that in the coming ages he might show The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus show we might become his image bearers. So we can see that we have not only been credited with the righteousness of the life of Christ. We've not only been justified. We've not only been given the credit for the life he lived as one of us. But we have been given the life itself. We have his life shared. We, the scripture says, died with him and rose again with him. And so now we have the opportunity, Romans says, to walk in newness of life. Not only do we have the credit for the righteousness of this life, but we have the life. The life itself is which is embodied by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus lived the way he did because the Father, it says in John chapter 3, gave him the Spirit without measure. We also have been given the Spirit, and so we also are made alive again in Christ. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of our redemption is not just our justification. Or you, some people might say, it's not just our salvation. It's not just that I was doomed to hell and now I'm not saved from that certain catastrophe. It's more than that, it's reconciliation to the living God. It means I can walk in fellowship with the living God. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The goal of our redemption is reconciliation. So we are born again by the Spirit. (laughs) That's what Jesus said, born again by the Spirit. We share the life of Christ, the life that is alive. Made in God's likeness to bear God's image. Fellowship is the thing that Jesus died and rose to provide to you. It is the main thing. The best one word summary of the gospel is reconciled. You had a broken relationship and that relationship has been mended. And so now... You have fellowship with God. And that's the text we read earlier, The Love of Christ Controls Us. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their sins against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake he made him who knew, who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, God did not make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become righteous in our own right. That's not what it says. But so that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God in him. All real righteousness is the righteousness of God expressed in us. It's not just me doing the right thing. It's me doing the right thing because I know him. Because I've seen him. Because I have his life and I live that life. Any, anyone can do the right thing on any given day. <clears throat> but the real righteousness is the righteousness that flows from him through us. Now there's more, something more to this reconciliation that we might notice. We have noticed from Ephesians 2 in our study of Ephesians. And that is as God was reconciled, Christ through the work of his cross was reconciling us to God. He was also reconciling us to each other. In Ephesians 2 we read this, He has made us both one to create in himself one new man so making peace who's this peace between it's between the people of the fellowship of the body of Christ that's who so he makes one new man out of us making peace among us and to reconcile us to God in one body through the cross Did you ever notice that we're reconciled to God in one body? That Christ makes the church and reconciles us all together to Him? And so our fellowship with one another is absolutely, completely tied to our fellowship with Him. You can't really have one without the other. They are made together by the ministry of the cross. So the atonement not only restores our union with God and Christ by the Spirit making us alive, the atonement also restores our unity in the family of God, one new man in Christ, one body of Christ. Or as we read read in the beginning of Ephesians 2, he makes us alive together. Reconciled all around. Reconciled all around. He himself is our peace. He doesn't just promise to reconcile us. He has already reconciled us. (laughs) We are one. We are not trying to become one. We don't do this. He has done it. He has made us one and made us one with him. This is the the New Testament answer to the prayer of Jesus in John 17 when he says, I'm praying, Father, that they would be one just as we are one. In other words, that our fellowship in the body of Christ would be a true reflection of the eternal fellowship of the living God. That has already been accomplished. But maybe not already been realized. This is the business of the church. The mission of the church is the church. The ecclesia, the the assembly, our fellowship in Christ by the Spirit with God the Father Reflected and realized in our fellowship with one another, Jesus Himself said this: "This is how everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another." This isn't some thing that serves some other greater purpose. This is the thing itself. Paul elaborates on this in Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here's the the key thing. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the only bond of peace he might be referring to here is that thing Jesus did when he himself is our peace when he makes us one new man in Christ to reconcile us together to God. Eager. That means in a hurry. To maintain, not to create. To maintain, not to create. What are we about? We are about... Somehow realizing the reconciliation that Christ has made. We're not trying to make it. We're trying to see it. We're trying to really see it. And to really see it, we're trying to exhibit it. We're trying to be its presentation to one another. Because I know the love of God, I love you with His love. And so I share with you this life we have together in common. Later in the book of Ephesians, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, until we all realize the unity that he has made. The unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature man, that really says, to a mature man, one new man in Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by what every joint, held together by every joint with which it it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The development of the love of the body of Christ, the expression of, of the eternal fellowship of the living God in the human relationships of the church. Nearly every function of the body of Christ, the church, is mentioned in that text in one way or another. And it has two principal goals. Number one, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And number two, the building up of the body in love. These are two ways of saying the same thing. Reconciled. Made whole in fellowship with one another. Reconciled. Fellowship is the thing itself. It's not the means to some other thing. The other things are only good in the pursuit of good fellowship. Good fellowship with God resulting in good fellowship with each other. What we are to do here is to be reconciled like that past passage said. Be reconciled. To bring this reality into reality. (laughs) This thing Jesus has done into the present. Into our everyday consciousness and action. Our goal is to realize the reconciliation that Jesus has made. To see it. To understand it. To enact it in real life. We don't need to make it. We need to know it and walk in it. And be eager to preserve, be in a hurry to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What an amazing opportunity. So, I exhort you, I implore you, be reconciled. Walk in fellowship with God. Walk in fellowship with God. There's three primary ways we walk in fellowship with God. The Word. The Word. The Word. Which is the Word of this in Christ. The whole Bible is the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So receive the Word of God. Oh, We also receive this in our conversations with one another. I hope you're receiving it now as I speak. That's my goal every time I speak. To simply give you what the Word of God declares. To tell you what God says so that we hear from God. When we pay attention to the Scripture, the Spirit works in us to understand it, to see it, to see how it might play out in our own lives. Walk in fellowship with God. Word. The second thing is worship. And by worship, I don't just mean getting together on Sunday morning like we are here today. I mean worship as in because I know the goodness of God in Christ, I trust myself entirely to Him. That's worship. And when we get together here on Sunday morning, it's not just to have the good feeling of singing or uh, to be encouraged by something I might say, but it is to worship, that is to having heard, having sung, to say to God, here I am, send me. Here I am, I am yours. I trust myself, my eternal destiny, and my destiny tomorrow to you i you i am yours and everything i have is yours that's worship then the third thing is prayer walk in fellowship with god word worship prayer remember that god is the source of all good things he is diligently providing for all the needs of his children That is always true, even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when, no no matter what. He's doing something. He is doing something really, really, really good right here, right now. I don't know everything about it, but it's good. Pray especially for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace to have real expression in the body. Pray for the elders that they would be so completely captivated by the love of Christ that they would become leading servants in the body of Christ realizing this reconciliation. When you pray, this is very important, when you pray, You are directly engaged in the thing Jesus died to make available to you. It is not some thing to get something else. It is the thing. Now, when I pray, I'm often asking God for other stuff. But I'm talking to God for crying out loud. That is the main thing. And that is the thing Jesus died to make available to me. Access to the throne of grace so that I can bring all my dumb, trivial needs to God and expect him to take care of it. And probably in some creative way I haven't thought of. But when I pray, I'm I'm doing fellowship with God right then, right there. That is the main thing. I don't pray to get something else. Prayer is the thing I got. Here's the second thing you should do. Walk in fellowship with God. Number two, strive to keep and grow good fellowship with each other. Strive to keep and grow good fellowship with each other. Here's what that means. Show up for each other. And I don't just mean show up in church, because of course, you can show up in church and not really be here. Not really be present and available to the other people. So it's not just that. Though it probably should include that. Because it's an opportunity to be together. Show up for each other. Be, have time together. Build friendships. Oh, and building friendships involves this. Open up. Open up. Let yourself be yourself. Be who you are. Who you are isn't who you will be yet. God isn't finished with any of us yet. So who you are is a bit messy. Who you are has needs. Who you are is sometimes kind of obnoxious to the rest of us. But be who you are. Open up. Let us know what your needs are. Let us know what your skills are. Let us know what you can do, how you could serve. Be open. And then share. Share is one of the basic definitions of the word fellowship. Share. And here's the first thing you can share. When someone opens up, you can communicate acceptance. So maybe you bump into someone in the church and they sort of bother you. And your first impulse is to break open fellowship. Mm. Share. You have the resource of unconditional acceptance if you are in Christ. You have it because he has given it. What you have before the throne of God is unconditional acceptance, even though you are kind of... You know, but you have this unconditional acceptance, so you have it to give someone else. So when anyone opens up, you accept them, you don't reject them. Now, that doesn't mean you leave them alone with whatever's wrong with them because that wouldn't be loving. But go gently, go gently, go gently. Because you too have plenty of sin over which you could be rejected. Show up, open up, share. Share anything you've got with anyone who needs it. Be ready to count on God's provision so you have something to provide. The third thing is deal with conflict like it's an emergency. Be eager, be eager. Talk to God about what you need. Don't expect it from the people around you. He might provide it through them, but he's providing it however he provides it. Talk to him. Ask, what do I want here? When you experience some difficulty or conflict in a relationship, ask the question, what do I want? And answer it. What I want is for you to behave I want you to stop doing whatever it is you're doing that annoys me. That's what I want. Whatever it is I want, I want to be clear about it, and then I want to talk to God about it, not you. I want to know what I want, and I want to say to God, "You need to give me what I want with this person." And then I can expect to God I can expect God to respond to that prayer according to His wisdom which is wiser than mine. So maybe I don't really need that. So then the next thing I want to do is serve the person. Serve the person without any particular need of a return from them. In other words, I'm going to think, when I think you're not treating me the way I, you ought to be treating me, I'm going to ask God, Lord, could you fix that person so they treat me the way I need to be treated while I'm praying that, I'm getting straightened out. But I'm praying that, and then I'm thinking, how do I serve the person? How do I express the love of Christ, which I do have, to that person without them needing them to respond in any particular way? And then I let go of what I want. I let go of what I want the ultimate expression of letting go of what I want is to forgive somebody. And the scripture says it in the book of Ephesians, as we've read recently, forgive as you have been forgiven. That's the whole thing on forgiveness. You haven't been forgiven just a little, or for a few of your stuff, but for all of it, all of it, all of it, even the stuff you haven't come up with yet, God has forgiven you. That's how you forgive. If you are not tapped into His, the resources of His love, you will never be able to pull that off. So walk in fellowship with God. Strive to keep and grow good fellowship in, among us. And deal with conflict like it's an emergency because it is. Because fellowship, the expression of the love of God in the body of Christ, is the mission of the church. Is the mission. In every situation, ask this. What difference does the reconciling work of Christ make here? In every situation, ask yourself this. What difference does the reconciling work of Jesus Christ make here? You have a problem at work. Ask yourself this question. How does it matter that I am reconciled to God in Christ as I deal with this situation? How can I see it? How can I bring a concrete expression of it into this situation in which I find myself? That's the whole thing, to be reconciled to God and to express that in reconciliation with all the people around me. That is our great privilege and opportunity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this. Thank You for the good news of Your grace in Christ for bringing us back into this fellowship so that knowing You, we might really know each other and love each other as we have been loved by You. Lord, I pray that this would be the reality of our church, that more and more, this priority of the expression of Your love of this eternal fellowshipping nature of yours would be more and more real in our life together in the body of Christ. For this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.